Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And so now we come uh, to step five, which is to mourn the wrongness of what happened and receive God's comfort. Or maybe another way to say that is I will trust God with my tears. The, the memories of what we uh, experience in trauma, they're very sticky. Uh, and the kind of meanings that we attach to them uh, are very plausible. They make sense. When we go back through that suffering story, there was nothing there that seemed silly in light of a traumatic experience. And so when we ask, what is it that we do with that? Uh, we want to begin to mourn the wrongness of what happened without the destructive messages that are attached to it. And it's why I love this statement from Stephen Tracy. He says, this is exactly why Lamentations... Uh, that very sad book in our Bible, was inspired by God as sacred Scripture. It teaches us how to mourn overwhelming losses and yet find hope in God. You know, grief is that process when we come to embrace that God agrees with our sorrows. In, in this step, part of what I hope we see is that we don't have to convince anybody of anything. Uh, we can finally be weak and cared for in the way that we longed for. And that's actually part of establishing an environment of safety. Because here's part of grief. Only people who feel safe grieve. You don't grieve until you feel safe. And so if you have, uh, in a war setting, and there's a guy there, and they're storming a particular area, and his buddy goes down, at that moment, he's not going to grieve, he's going to survive. He doesn't grieve until he comes home and is in a safer context. And this is where we often get upset with ourselves. And when grief feels bad, we feel like we're regressing. But grief is oftentimes, and I would say usually, a, an indication that, that our environment of safety is actually being established to the point that we have more emotional freedom than what we had before. And that begs the question, what is it that we're mourning? Because most of the losses of trauma are not tangible. We can't quite put our finger on them. It's why uh, Judith Herman, she would say, the telling of the trauma story thus inevitably plunges the survivor into profound grief. Since so many of the losses are invisible or unrecognized, the customary rituals of mourning provide little consolation. The descent into mourning is at once the most necessary and the most dreaded task in this stage of recovery. The survivor needs help from others to mourn her losses. All of the classic writings ultimately recognize the necessity of mourning and reconstruction in the resolution of the traumatic life events. Failure to complete the normal process of grieving perpetuates the traumatic reaction. And so what we'll look at 
uh, is 10 losses. Again, you may not experience all of these, but these are the kinds of things to consider uh, to help you figure out what is it that I might need to mourn. And one of those would be the loss of a sense of safety. How much does your life change when you don't trust your surroundings? Again, if we think of a trauma, maybe it's one we haven't talked about as much, but being in the context of an earthquake, when you no longer trust the ground under your feet and that the buildings around you are going to... How, how does that change the way that you relate to your world? Now, that would be a loss of a sense of safety to be grieved. doesn't mean it can't be restored, but for our time period it's loss and it merits grief. The loss of a sense of competence. I mean, after a trauma and we are combating these things, we get to that point where we say, I have never tried so stinking hard at anything in my life and come up short as this. I mean, I'm normally a pretty competent person. I I can accomplish things and get things done, but I've never tried as hard as anything as I've tried overcoming this and feel like I'm getting nowhere. Am I just not as strong or as smart or as resourceful as I thought I was? Uh, That would be a loss of a sense of competence. A loss of sense of trust. Again, in that state of hyper-arousal where it begins to erode, um, I'm looking for what's wrong and that begins to impact the relationships around me. Uh, I I can lose that sense of trust and it makes that sense of isolation Uh, and avoidance uh, so much stronger. Uh, The loss of emotional regulation. I mean, when I don't trust my ability to answer the question, how significant is this event? I mean, that's one of the things. You know, when it comes to emotional regulation, a lot of it just has to do with me being able to tell how big is this event? And when I am anticipating something going catastrophically wrong because I don't want to be caught off guard again, it feels like I lose control of my emotions. The loss of a sense of proportionality. Again, that similar kind of idea, but that's a major life skill. And it's one of the reasons why a sense of humor is really hard to figure out what to do with that after a trauma. Because humor is so much based on proportionality and trauma blows up proportionality. Yet, uh, the loss of a sense of identity. Again, we go back to this is a very unwanted before and after event. I, I point to the trauma or traumas that I've been through, and, and I just begin to measure my life as before and after that, and I'm trying to figure out, who am I now? Uh, the loss of innocence. And this is not just uh, in the sexual sense. Uh, but and sometimes we hear innocence, and after a trauma we think naive, and we go, I don't want to be naive again. But if I could offer you kind of a neutral definition of innocence, it's simply the ability to assume the best without being fake. I mean, when I see my kids, and they're in kind of that young, innocent phase, they just kind of assume Papa's going to be able to take care of it whether it's something I really have control over or not, and innocence is that ability to assume the best without being fake. 
And, and that's something that after a trauma, uh, we often lose. With that, uh, maybe the loss of childhood. Uh, just that opportunity to develop socially, emotionally, cognitively, at a normal pace. You know, oftentimes when a child goes through trauma, uh, what we, how we describe that child is as an adultified child. They had to grow up fast. They had to process things that were before the time that they were ready to process them. Uh, in that uh, there is a loss of childhood, doesn't mean it's irreparably damaged, but we can look back and say, I am sad that I did not have the opportunity to grow up in those ways, and it is right for me to miss that. Uh, if it is sexual abuse that is that trauma, um, it can be the loss of virginity, and there be uh, a lot of shame uh, associated with that. Uh, again, a, a perspective that can be helpful for uh, many people who have had that experience uh, is to realize that sex is something that can be taken, uh, virginity can only be given. Uh, and so it just because that was taken, there was something that was mine to give that I was not giving in that moment. Uh, and, and to have some of that sense of voice uh, about that aspect of my life uh, can be important. And then the loss of any sense of God's presence. doesn't mean God's not there, uh, but think about it with me this way. When pain is close, when pain is right up in our face, it can make God feel like He is far. It, it feels like pain is come between me and God, so however close God is, it is not close in comparison to how close the pain is. And I just feel abandoned. And, and all of those things uh, are, are losses uh, to be grieved uh, after a trauma. Now, I think it's worth for a moment for us to differentiate mourning or grief and fixation. Because they have enough in common. I mean, they're both highly repetitive activities because when you mourn, you, you kind of replay the same things over and over again. And, and so there's a section here just on what's the difference between healthy mourning and unhealthy fixation. And you'll see there kind of a set of bullets of things that are similar. And when you look over that list, um, when you look at that list, you don't know if you're mourning or if you're fixating. All you know is that you're hurting. And so if we were to say, what are some of those things that would be a difference between healthy mourning and unhealthy fixation? That's what that second list is about. Uh, fixation fears hope. Uh, fixation just... Hope deferred makes the heart sick. I know how to fix that. Don't hope. Um, mourning is willing to trust hope, even if gradually. Um, fixation resents joy. Again, I just it makes me uncomfortable. Mourning at least longs for joy. Uh, fixation is skeptical towards faith. Anybody who tries to share an encouraging word, I just I don't want to hear it. It, it feels. It feels like Pollyanna. It feels like pie in the sky. No. Uh, mourning is willing to listen to faith. Uh, you can look at the others. When you look at that, here's a couple of things that, that I would want you to consider. Uh, you may have felt rushed 
in the way that you were trying to make those transitions. People may have been able to pick up on the fact uh, that you were on one side of that that was unhealthy, and they wanted to help by getting you to the healthy side very quickly. I think we can rest in the fact that God is patient. Um, Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break. And so, after a trauma, there is going to be a natural tendency towards fixation. And part of grieving is just moving that uh, to the healthier side of the equation. And so hopefully you begin to see the second part that I would encourage you to look at there, is each of these qualities are progressively realized. It's not as if at any moment you're going to be 100% healthy grieving and 0% unhealthy fixation. Uh, The human heart is just not that neat and clean. Um, Our goal is to be increasingly on the healthy side. And so that brings us to the question of uh, how do we mourn? You know, we've we've identified what we're mourning. Uh, We've looked at kind of what the unhealthy alternative to mourning would be. Um, But when we begin to ask the question, how do we mourn? We immediately realize mourning is not nearly uh, as active or voluntary as we want it to be. It's not as if I'm going to be able to give you a set of behaviors and you go, you know what, Uh, next Saturday I've got some time, I can take like four hours, I can go out in the woods, I can do whatever it is that you're going to tell me to do, and and I'll just like, I'll I'll knock this out. Uh, it's, It's not that active or voluntary. And so, realize it's not something you're going to be able to put on your calendar. Don't feel rushed. Whenever we feel rushed, it undermines our sense of safety. And it begins to uh, misconstrue God's sense of compassion. One of my, my favorite psalms is Psalm 23. Very popular one where it says, He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And just the patience with which you know, if I'm the shepherd and I'm going through the valley of shadow of death, I'm rushing those sheep. Uh, I mean, I want to get along, little doggy. I mean, I'm ready for us to go. Um, God is not intimidated. And so He can walk at the pace that we can sustain. Uh, he is patient. And that's what allows us to rest in God's care before the next stage of the journey. It's not as if God is trying to get us through this so that we can go back to being productive. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to view ourselves as God employees instead of God's children. You know, it's as if God's going, look, I, I'm paying for this time right here. I mean, I want a little better return on my investment. It's okay for you to be hurt, but how long is this going to take? Because, you know, I, I kind of paid a lot at the cross for you and you need to do a little more for me. Um, that would be if we were God's employees. We are God's children. And he, he wants to see us restored, and that is His greatest delight. And when we do the things that He made us for, that is the joy of a parent who sees their child living a satisfying life, not the boss who's getting a better profit margin on somebody. Um, so what does healthy grief look like? Uh, your goal is to assimilate steps one through three without the contamination of step four. When I can 
acknowledge what happened and understand its impact without embracing those destructive messages. And I can be sad about that and receive God's care for it. That is when I am grieving healthy and I'm ready to take the next step. And realize that sadness is not the final chapter. This is step five of nine. We always live mid-story. And so, the fact that there is more story here means that while this chapter is sad, it's not the final chapter. And I think Judith Herman gives us a good picture of what grieving a trauma would look like. She says, it occurs to the survivor that perhaps the trauma is not the most important or even the most interesting part of her her story. She will never forget. She will think of the trauma every day as long as she lives. Not because she wants to, because it's intrusive. She will grieve every day. But the time comes when the trauma no longer commands the central place in her life. That's when grief is reaching its resolution. And so at this point, I would want you to realize God is not rushing you. If anything, I think we're often disappointed by God's patience. We kind of wish God would move us along a little faster. Uh, But there's no merit in a fast journey versus a slow journey. What God desires for us is faithfulness uh, and restoration. Uh, We don't have to argue with one who is well acquainted with grief. He is the good shepherd who will walk with us at the pace we can sustain.